0: John chapter 4, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 4, we're continuing our series about Jesus and unbelievers, our our calling. I mean, each of us has a, a separate purpose in God's plan. You can't accomplish what I'm called to do and I can't accomplish what you're called to do, but what we have in common is our purpose revolves around the relationships that God has brought into our lives. It's not what you do for a living. It's not how much you make for a living. It's who you touch, who you influence who you are able to encourage and inspire toward God. And last week we talked about how Jesus dealt with people who were seekers. We looked at the story of Nicodemus, and you and I have people in our lives. Hopefully this past week you were able to look, and through prayer and through the Holy Spirit, you are able to say, okay, I see signs that this friend of mine is starting to get interested in spiritual topics, or this coworker he's spouting off his own opinions about, about religious ideas, and I don't agree with him, but that's... That's an opportunity for me to dialogue with him humbly and graciously. Hopefully, you've see, you're seeing opportunities to enter into those kinds of conversations. Today, we're going to look at a very different kind of person who Jesus interacted with and who we're called to interact with. See, I want to start by telling you a story. When I was in seventh grade, there was a kid in my junior high. And let's call him Todd. That's not his name. But Todd was, he, he was just a weird kid. He just, he just was. He didn't fit... Todd was tall and skinny with this stringy blonde hair uh, and a really bad complexion. I mean, the, the bad the, the acne hit early in Todd's life, and, and he did not take care of himself. He, he obviously didn't shower a lot. His clothes were pretty ratty. Um, Todd, beyond his appearance, though, he was just odd. Uh, Todd was a big fan of heavy metal music. In the early 80s, that meant Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, bands like that. Uh, I'm sure you're real familiar with all of those, right? Um, And and Todd, this was the days before any kind of portable music device. So, you know, nobody even dreamed of an iPhone back then. They didn't even have Walkmans. So millennials, you can Google that. Um, and, And so Todd... Even though he didn't have a way to carry his music with him, he still had it. So he would walk around singing his music. Again, heavy metal music. He's air guitaring, he's banging his head, he's, he's shouting these lyrics as he's walking down the hall. You can imagine. This made him an object of great curiosity and great mockery in our hallways. And listen, junior high is a difficult time for anybody. I like to quote the... Uh, the late great evangelist John Randalls who said, there's nothing in the world dumber than a 7th grade boy and there's nothing in the world meaner than an 8th grade girl. So, you know, it's a hard time of life. I'm sure you all are all the exception, right? right? But it's a hard time of life for anybody, even the popular kids. But think about somebody like Todd. I mean, more than once I saw a girl who was walking, was passing him in the hallway and a boy would jump out and push him into her or push her into him so that she would scream and run the other way. I mean, you can imagine being this kid. Now, he would laugh, but it had to hurt. I never saw anyone talking to Todd. I mean, really sitting down and having a conversation. I never saw them eating lunch together or anything like that. So here I was, a seventh grader, and one night as I lay in my bed, for some reason my mind was on him. And I was a Christian. I had come to know Christ at the age of nine. I had a very compassionate mother and a good dad, and so I was raised well. And as I lay there in my bed, I thought, you know, Jesus would want me to be Todd's friend. He'd want me to befriend this young man and, and show him kindness. And, and so in my mind, I had this vision of, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to go and, and I'm going to bring him in to the little touch football game that we have going every day at lunchtime. And I'm going to teach him how to throw and how to catch because he probably didn't know. And he's going to fit in with us and he's going to find a, a group of friends in my friends. And it's, it's really like a rescue mission. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem this kid. And in my mind, I even pictured his mom, which I didn't know his mom. I didn't know if he even had a mom. But in my mind, I pictured this generic mom figure, and she's wrapping me in a hug, and she's saying, thank you for being my son's friend. And I was just thinking, you know, what a good kid I am. I mean, what other, who else would think of something like this? God must be really proud of me that I have such a heart for the least of his children. And so the next day, I woke up. I lived way out in the country, so I had to get up early to go to school. had this long bus ride. Let me tell you something. The bus ride was never longer than it was that day, because all that ride, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I told God last night that I was going to talk to Todd today. And, and, and y'all need to understand, I wasn't one of the cool kids. Now, I wasn't on the social spectrum, I wasn't down where Todd was, but I was somewhere in the middle, and so I had a lot to lose. You know, if you're one of the cool kids, whatever you do is cool, but if you're in the middle, you can lose what little status you have so easily. And so I was really scared. What's going to happen? But I knew I'd promised God I was going to do this. And so um, I, I fought back my fears. Lunchtime came. It was a rainy day, so we couldn't go outside and play football. They had a basketball game going on in the gym. Usually I would have tried to get in on that, but I knew what I was supposed to do. So Todd was sitting up in the stands all by himself as usual, You know, banging his head, air guitaring, whatever. So I walked up there and I sat down next to him and I tried to engage Todd in conversation. And I'll tell you, I lasted about two minutes because Todd was weird. It was hard to make conversation with him. He didn't really respond like you would expect him to respond. And I thought, okay, I need to pull out. Somebody's going to see this and, and they're going to get the idea that I'm his friend and I can't, I can't risk that and I walked away. I think about that a lot, because Todd moved away after that year. I don't know what happened to him. I never saw him again. I I just wonder where he is today. (sighs) I think about all the other kids that I grew up with that were just a little different, maybe just didn't fit for whatever reason. There was a girl in fifth grade that we all avoided because she had cooties, whatever that meant. There was a kid I knew pretty well um, who didn't speak to anyone outside his own home until he was a sophomore in high school. Every day, he was just silent. Sixteen years old, he starts speaking, and we find out he's a pretty good guy, but can you imagine what he went through, all that isolation up to that time? You can probably remember kids like that. Some of you ladies, maybe there was a point when a real odd boy had a crush on you, and you felt really uncomfortable because... I mean, first of all, it wouldn't have happened, but you happen to be nice to him, and that's the reward you get for being nice, and now what are you going to do? Because if you break up with him, what do you you know, not break up, but if you give him the bad news that I don't actually like you, or you really mean, that's an uncomfortable position to be in. Maybe some of us, if we were honest, would say, yeah, there's this kid, I was really mean to him. And there's this girl, I was really, I was really ugly to her. Maybe you were that kid. Maybe. Maybe you struggled with various things and you just didn't have any friends and you were the one who just didn't fit. You know that those kids grow up, right? They don't stay kids forever. And as adults, they still need friends. Beyond that, they need Jesus. There are people in our world that we tend to ignore and overlook and we rationalize it in various ways. We just don't run in the same circles. That's the term we usually use. Those people are loved by God who created them. If you think Todd's mom would have been glad that I was his friend, think how glad God is when we pay attention to the least of his children. We owe them the gospel. They need to know Christ. They need to know the one who loved them enough to die for them. So how do we handle that? Here's a story in John 4, which we've heard before, many of us, about Jesus interacting with a really strange woman. So let's pick up with chapter 4, verse 3, and we'll see three things we have to do to bring the love of Christ to the outcast. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. This is verse 3 is where I'm beginning. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now let me just stop there and say, the first step we have to take is we have to choose to engage people like this. We have to choose to invest in their lives and become part of their world. When John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, what he's saying is that was the most direct route from Judea in the north to Galilee in the south. Samaria stood between those two points. But most other Jews would have taken the long way around. They would have averted, they would have skirted around Samaria rather than go through it. Why? Because, well, Samaritans live in Samaria. And Samaritans were people who for the last 800 years had been A mixed-race group of people, part Jewish, part something else. They were essentially the result of an exile of the Jews that happened under the Assyrian army. Most of the Jews were carried away. A few remained behind, and the pagans who moved in Intermarried with the Jews that were left behind, they became the Samaritans. Over the years, there had been not only racial division between them and, the, and those full-blooded Jews, but also some serious conflict. If you read the book of Nehemiah, there's a story about how the Samaritans tried to stop the Jews from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So there was serious conflict between these groups. They hated each other. And they would have avoided each other. Jesus plows right through the middle of Samaria, stops in the town of Sychar. He sees this woman coming, and not only does he have a racial reason to ignore her, she's a Samaritan. Number two, she's also a woman. In that culture, if you wanted to be uh, an esteemed moral man, if you wanted to show people I'm holy, and, and so worship me or, or, or listen to my teachings, you wouldn't speak to a woman who wasn't your mom or your spouse. You would, you would show yourself set apart by not interacting with the opposite sex. Jesus, though, speaks right up. And then there's a social reason why he probably, most people wouldn't have spoken to this woman. You know how we all can read certain social cues and see that a person doesn't really fit, whether it's the way they dress or, or maybe some mannerisms. This woman was carrying a water jug in the heat of the day at noon. You know, next Saturday, I'm going to be standing in a football stadium, an open-air football stadium, Lord willing, at noon, starting at 11, like an idiot, uh, losing about eight pounds of water weight watching my team, this woman was getting water in the hottest part of the day. And you didn't do that. Not only was it not comfortable, but the tradition, the, the custom was that women would all gather water together. You see, in those times, women worked very hard. They worked dawn to dusk. They worked from sunup to sundown, from wake up to to go to bed. And the only time they had to socialize with anybody outside their family was when they gathered the water. And the women would go in the morning and they'd gather that day's water and they'd share stories, they'd talk to one another, they'd encourage one another. This woman came alone. She wasn't welcome with those other ladies. Jesus could have seen that. I know he saw it. And he could have said, obviously there's something wrong with her. I'm not speaking to her. But no, he speaks right up. Would you give me a drink of water? And by the way, this isn't Jesus speaking to a social inferior saying, serve me. That was a culture that that highly valued hospitality. If you came to my house in that culture and said, hey, do you have something to eat? I would have felt honored. I mean, if you come to my house in the 21st century and say, do you have anything to eat? I'm like, well, Chick-fil-A is down the street. But I know it's Sunday, but... (laughs) Jesus wasn't insulting this woman. He was honoring her by saying, would you draw me a, a little water? Listen to her response. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Now let me just stop there and say, we need to engage people. We need to choose to be part of the world of these people who don't have anyone, who are overlooked, who are outcasts, who are rejected. But it's going to take patience, too. See, the second thing we know is we need to be patient with these people, with these men, with these women. Because I know, like me in seventh grade, I had this idealistic idea, this naive idea that if I just, if I just treated Todd with a little common courtesy, he'd be so grateful. He would, just, he would just lap it up. Man, what a great guy you are. And I'd get all these warm fuzzies for being a nice guy. That's not the way it worked. And when we engage people who've been socially isolated, maybe people who suffer from anxiety, maybe people who suffer from depression, maybe they're just shy it's not going to be as easy as we think. Sometimes because they do struggle with some emotional issues and so human interaction is a little harder. Sometimes because they've just been burned so many times. They've had too many people abuse them. So many people uh, lead them on only to break their heart. You're going to have to earn their trust. And if you read this conversation between Jesus and this woman, it's amazing how antagonistic she is right from the get-go. Excuse me, ma'am, would you get me a drink of water? Let's, let's, let's share a drink together as brother and sister. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. How can you ask me such a question? Right out of the gate, she's defensive. Right out of the gate, she's antagonistic. And then Jesus, as he's so skilled at doing, he turns a, a common everyday conversation towards spiritual issues. He says, do you know there's something called living water? I've got it, and I'd be glad to give it to you. And her answer is sarcastic. You don't even have anything to draw with. You don't have a bucket. How can you draw water? And by the way, don't you know that our father Jacob, you know, Jacob, the father of the Jews, is also our father, and he put his well in our property? Not your property. You don't have Jacob's well. We have Jacob's well. You can't draw from this well. This is ours. Let's pick up verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And by the way, think about that promise. Think about what Jesus is talking about, a constant source of refreshment. So that even in your worst day, even at the end of of when you've been working seven twelves, or when your heart has been broken again or when life has turned out to be disappointing, you've got this source of water, this well of refreshment springing up within you that says, yes, but there's a reason to go on. You can't steal my joy. Jesus is promising that. And the woman's response in verse 15 is, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Now, you can debate with me, and I don't know that I'm right, but based on the way the conversation has gone up to this point, I think her words are sarcastic. She's not being sincere. I think she's like, sounds good to me. Let's have it. Bring it on. Pour on the living water. Let's see it. So Jesus all of a sudden shifts the conversation in verse 16. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. And Jesus said, You think? You just cracked the code, lady, didn't you? That's not actually what he said. Notice the patience. This is the Son of God here. He's also a Jew and proud to be a Jew. He's, he, he has a social identity. This is a woman from a group that he knows despises him. He goes and he tries to show her kindness and her response is defensiveness, it's arrogance, it's antagonism, it's accusation, it's sarcasm, and he's patient with her to the end. I'm just telling you, friends, that if you want to engage people who've been hurt, it's going to take time, it's going to take patience, it's going to mean understanding that there will be times that they misinterpret what you're saying, it's going to mean take it slowly, invest. Don't give up after a couple of interactions. Be patient. And then third and finally, we need to focus on what's most important. See, Jesus Jesus uh, doesn't get in an argument with this woman. And I want you to see what she brings up next. This is key. Verse 20, she says... Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, they're standing near Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans had a shrine there. That's where they worshipped Yahweh, same God as the Jews. But the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount that Solomon had built. And the Samaritans had told themselves, those Jews have it wrong. God has planted the temple here. This is where we are to worship God. I don't care how big Herod's temple is uh, in Jerusalem. This is where God really dwells. So what is this woman doing? This conversation has just gotten very uncomfortable. Jesus has just revealed, I know everything about you. I know about the awful sexual dysfunction of your life up till now. You've had five husbands, and now you're living with someone who's not your husband. He won't even give you his name. He's just using you. He's exposed her social dysfunction, how no one is your friend. He knows everything about her, and she could once stand on this idea of, well, I'm a proud Samaritan. He's exposed her inner self, and that's not comfortable for anybody. So her only tactic is to say, well, listen, let's debate for a while. Where do you say we should worship God? In Jerusalem, like you Jews, or on Mount Gerizim, like us Samaritans? And Jesus isn't having any of that. Notice his response in verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. He's saying, you're not even in the right argument here. This is not what matters. God is God, and He'll go wherever people are who truly want to worship him. But that's not even the point. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Let me tell you what's remarkable about that. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, You notice Jesus goes to great pain to hide his true identity for a while. I mean, from the day he came back from the desert where he was tempted by the devil, started his ministry, to the day he went to the cross, he was kind of keeping his identity on the down low. So if he healed somebody, he'd say, hey, don't tell anyone I did this. If he approached a person who was demon-possessed, the demon inside that person would cry out, you're the son of God, leave me alone. And Jesus would say, be quiet. Jesus would say, shut up. I don't want you, you don't need to tell people who I am. Why would Jesus do this? Because he knew that the people of Israel had a wrong idea of who the Messiah was. He didn't want to to start a revolution, and that's what would happen if they thought, oh, the Messiah is here. He didn't want them fighting the Romans. He didn't want blood shed on his behalf. He wanted to die for our sins. So he kept it quiet. At this point in the story, even Jesus' own disciples don't know who he is. They've got an idea, they've got a hunch, but they they haven't figured it out yet, and he sure hasn't told them. But here's this woman, this five times married, now cohabitating, rejected, socially isolated, obscure, weird, Samaritan woman, and he just straight out tells her, got a secret for you, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're waiting for. I'm the Son of God. Salvation has come. Why would he do that? He told her what she needed to hear. What she needed to hear to be transformed. And what happens next is amazing. This woman runs back into her village, probably leaves her water bucket, forgets all about it. She tells everyone in town, I've just met the Messiah. He knows everything there is to know about me. Come and see him. And the people come out from the village and they visit with Jesus and Jesus ends up spending several days there. And at the end of his time there, the whole village is made up of disciples of Christ. And they say, at first we believed because of her testimony. Now we believe because we've seen you. So one of the greatest soul winners of all time, and probably the first missionary, is this unlikeliest of candidates, this rejected obscure, overlooked, sinful woman. And Jesus chose her. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. There was a time when Jesus, sort of like me in the seventh grade, looked at a group of people who were weird. And that group of people was us. He looked at us and he said, they don't know what they're doing. They don't get anything right they sure don't fit in where it counts. In the family of God, in the kingdom of heaven, they don't belong, they don't fit. But like me, he looked down at that group and he said, I'm going to come on a rescue mission. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to be their friend. I'm going to make them fit for friendship with God. you know, when Jesus came into the world in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, in the form of a Jewish carpenter, Nobody liked that plan. Nobody. The religious elites hated his plan. They said, what is this guy doing hanging out with sinners? Is he soft on sin or what? Jesus' own family didn't like it. You know there was a time when Jesus' mother and brothers came and tried to drag him home by force because they thought he'd lost his mind? You know that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in his divinity, his messiahship, until after he was dead and resurrected? Jesus' own disciples would get in his way. They'd say, well, hey, Lord, we, we just went through a town that didn't receive you. Should we call down fire from heaven and roast them all alive? And Jesus is like, what are you guys doing? Who, who do you think I am? Nobody liked his plan. And you know, you know. I told you about that long bus ride and how I was second-guessing myself. Jesus had a moment sort of like that, and it was in a garden called Gethsemane, this olive grove. It was the night before. In fact, within hours, he was going to be arrested, and it was all going to begin. This, this awful, awful uh, 24-hour period for Jesus was about to start, and he was praying to the Father. He was saying, Lord, I know this is the plan. Is there another way? Is there another way to get this done? Because I... I'm struggling with this. In fact, his struggle was so sincere that the Bible says, um, one of the Gospels says that he, he began to sweat blood. You know, there's an actual medical condition, and I can't remember the name of it. It's something Latin, but uh, it's, it's an actual medical condition where if you're under severe physical or emotional stress, the the capillaries next to your sweat glands can burst and you can literally bleed uh, sweat blood. And that's what happened to Jesus there. That's what, the kind of strain he was under. Why? Not because of the nails and not because of the, the whip. Uh, those were bad enough, but because he knew he was taking on himself the sins of all mankind. So every punishment I deserve for every sin I've ever committed, he was about to get it. And not just from me, but from all seven, eight, 10 billion people who've ever lived. He was about to face that, not physical punishment, hell on earth. And you know what Jesus did? He didn't chicken out. He didn't walk away. He got up and he said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And he ran. He, he approached his betrayer. He went to his death with joy in his heart. See, what Jesus did was he came on a rescue mission for us and he did not turn back. And therefore, and therefore, Todd has a friend. Even though I couldn't be his friend, Todd has a true friend in Jesus Christ. And I hope he's met him. And all the Todds of this world and, and all the people like you and me, every one of us, we have one true friend who opened the door where we could discover that there's a God there who loves us. And we have a home a place will never be rejected. And because we've received that kind of grace, our response should be, Lord, I want to go out and find the children of yours who are still wandering. I want to bring them home too. So this week, so this week pray and help God, ask God to help you to see the todds in the world around you. Lord, how can I engage them? Give me the patience to stick with them. And give me the opportunity when the time is right, when they're ready, to share with them what's most important.